Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. First, let me explain what we're doing here. There are a lot of great podcasts, and there's some really great political podcasts, but we're doing something different. We're taking a different road. We're taking a fresh look at our political system. Introducing The X-Ray, a new political podcast about political power. Who wants it, who wills it, and why? A penetrating analysis of the biggest issues facing American politics. Interviews with power players, conversations with politicos, experts, and national journalists. And a special segment called X-Ray Vision, a fun exploration of the real person behind the political title. I'm your host, Fernando Espuelas, and I hope you'll join me every week on The X-Ray. For more information, check out thexray.org, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray is a project of Issue One. I'm Weston Womp, and this is Swamp Stories, brought to you by Issue One. If we've learned anything in the last several weeks, it's to not underestimate the extent to which a pandemic can affect life in America. Take, for example, the world of sports. Everything was normal until the evening of March 11th. The Thunder and the Jazz were on the floor, as Roy Young had reported. They were moments away from tip-off. Uh, Thunder doctor came sprinting from the locker room. In an instant, that basketball game was canceled and the NBA season was suspended. Within 48 hours, the beloved NCAA basketball tournament was canceled and the Masters Golf Tournament was postponed. As the reality set in that this was a contagious and deadly virus for which a vaccine does not exist, it became clear that life as we know it in 2020 was going to change. But no one got the attention of my home state of Tennessee, like ESPN college football commentator Kirk Herbstreet. Even if this curve is flattened out, this virus is still out there. I'll be shocked, honestly. I haven't talked with anybody. I'll be shocked if we have NFL football this fall, if we have college football. I'll be so surprised if, if that happens. Now, as much as I love college football, and as a University of Tennessee alum, you better believe I do, there is another far more important feature event in the fall of 2020 that will also be affected by the coronavirus pandemic. But this one can't be canceled and it can't be postponed. This is episode 10. The show must go on. On November 3rd of this year, we will elect a president, along with members of Congress and countless state legislators across the country. The peaceful transition of power that will follow whether it is the incumbent president beginning a second term or a new president being inaugurated, is as much a hallmark of our democratic republic as any single tradition. Through a civil war and two world wars, we held elections undeterred. After September 11th, we held elections, and we will do it again in the face of a once-in-a-century pathogen. But something is different this time around. Seton Hall University recently ran public polling showing that 72% of Americans would not attend a sporting event until a vaccine is available. Around the same time, Pew released a poll revealing 66% of voters would not be comfortable voting in person. Well, I think not only do we have a coronavirus crisis, we have a democracy crisis. Because what's going to happen in my worst nightmare, my fear, 
is that no one votes because they're much more fearful of contracting a disease than they are of not voting. That was the voice of Denise Merrill, Connecticut's no-nonsense Secretary of State, who spoke to me about the challenges we could face come November. The bottom line is no one should have to choose between their health and their vote. People feel this very deeply. Now, I feel like I've heard it all, but there's no argument here. People shouldn't have to choose between voting and their health. If voting is at a historic low, that would be a disaster. It would cause people to question the results of an election and even our very democracy. In some ways, the problem is this simple. Up until now, the majority of Americans, the overwhelming majority, normally vote in person. So there's going to be chaos if two things don't happen. First, states have to be ready for massive spikes in absentee ballot voting, which every state already allows. A handful of states like Colorado, Utah, and Washington already conduct their elections mostly by mail, and early voting is pretty much ubiquitous. Second, in-person voting needs to be made safe for voters and poll workers alike. But most states aren't even close to ready for this, regardless of which party's in charge. And they're in for a world of hurt if they don't have the resources to make their elections safe and secure. Mass confusion. Mass confusion, a great deal of anxiety among the voting population. And at the end of the day, you know, we're trying to create some stability. We don't want a confused process for the general election in November. That was former RNC chair Michael Steele a conservative from Maryland and a fierce advocate for action now to avoid a catastrophe or what we in Tennessee would call a dumpster fire this fall. Elections in the fall will be different and we should not assume that they won't be, that somehow come September, October, we'll magically fall back into the routine, whatever that is in our daily lives and whatever that may be in the electoral process. And of course, that's backed up by the experts. In fact, I would anticipate that that would actually happen because of the degree of transmissibility. That, of course, was Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, if he wasn't already, is now certainly one of the most trusted men in America. We got a sneak preview of the chaos that nearly every state could experience this November when Wisconsin held its primary elections in early April. They're telling us to stay in the house and, you know, stand six feet from each other, but then they're forcing us to come out here in a group. Stop playing politics with our lives. Let's take Milwaukee, for example. Population 600,000 people, and there are normally 180 polling locations. But due to a shortage of poll workers, there were only five open. And that is why you saw images on TV of people in masks standing in long lines in the rain wrapped around buildings. Meanwhile, requests for mail-in ballots were up over 400%, causing some voters to receive their ballots after the election had already passed. Now, as we've covered before, the U.S. Constitution explicitly gives states the power to run elections, even for candidates for federal office. But in this moment of extreme uncertainty, in the middle of a pandemic, they're going to need financial help from Congress to make sure elections are safe, fair, and secure. And they're going to have to pull all of that together in a hurry. At this point, what I'm talking about and a lot of advocates like myself on the right are talking about is allowing the states the flexibility with the help and support of the federal government to grant full, unfettered access to the ballot box given the nature of the crisis that we're in. Now, there already is one piece of good news. Due to pressure from a lot of groups and leaders across the political spectrum, including Steele's group, the U.S. Vote Foundation, Congress allocated $400 million in election funding in its Phase 3 COVID-19 stimulus bill. 
But that is really just a down payment, a fraction of what states are going to actually need. Ultimately, it's going to be the responsibility of secretaries of states and local election officials across the country to adjust on the fly and prepare for the unknown. And nothing about that is going to be easy. This doesn't happen with the flip of the switch. That requires having resources in place to have those ballots printed, to process those ballots, to get those ballots mailed out. Like I said earlier, every state in the union already has some form of absentee voting. And many states, 33 to be exact, don't require you to have a reason for doing so, like being out of town or being ill. Others do, like Denise's state of Connecticut or my home state of Tennessee, which allows absentee ballots, but only to people over 60 or in other very specific categories. But a solution that may work in Connecticut and could work other places is to add pandemic to the list of excuses so that more people can safely vote from home. But it's been a long process coming, and all of a sudden, this has thrust us into a situation where we just need that flexibility so that everyone would be able to vote despite being ill being afraid of being ill, potentially being ill, and a great fear that the polling places are no longer safe. We'll be right back. If you like what you've heard in this podcast, then you need to read The Fulcrum. It's the only news organization dedicated exclusively to covering the fight for democracy across the country from gerrymandering and money in politics to voting rights, election security, and everything in between. Read their stories and sign up for their newsletter at fulcrum.us. Welcome back to Swamp Stories. You won't be surprised to learn that this issue has become a bit partisan at the national level. Some Democrats have been pushing for universal vote by mail, and President Trump has been vocally speaking out against mail voting which he says, quote, for some reason doesn't work out well for Republicans, end quote. But a new academic study came out that found that's not actually true. It's pretty even between the parties. But all the partisan takes about so-called vote by mail miss an important point. Every state has had some system for absentee voting for ages. And in fact, there's something interesting going on. Increasingly, we're seeing leadership in the states on these issues, and a lot of it is coming from Republicans taking a look at ways that we can prepare for the November elections. Take Maryland, for example. Governor Hogan, one of the most popular politicians in America, postponed their April primary to June and said it will primarily be a mail-in ballot election. Some polls will still be open, but people will be encouraged to use absentee ballots. West Virginia, which is a pretty red state, is sending absentee voting applications to every registered voter for their May presidential primary. Republicans in Missouri, they're working to expand options. And the Republican governor of New Hampshire has announced that his state is exploring options like drive-up voting in November. From a public health perspective, this is necessary, but it's also smart politics. You have to realize who's affected by this virus. And for Republicans, it's a lot of our voters who are 50 plus years old who are reliable voters. That said, Steele points out it's a fool's errand to try to find some partisan advantage in the middle of a pandemic. Pandemics are not partisan, so no party gets a particular advantage because, you know, coronavirus doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. It just knows you have cells that they can attack in your body. One-size-fits-all policy rarely works for all 50 states in America. States have wide latitude to decide for themselves what they need. And while absentee ballots and early voting are valuable tools, 
They are not the only things we have to explore, and they're not a complete substitute for people voting in person. In states that have nearly all male elections, it took years for them to get there. So even if states wanted to, it would be nearly impossible for them to totally transition at this late date in an election year. Many of us have systems that are very paper heavy. Uh, you have to mail applications out to people. People have to ask for applications, first of all. None of this is online, at least in my state. So uh, to ramp up that system would take years, literally, and a lot of resources, <laughs> money. That means that while expanding absentee ballots is part of the equation to making November work, we've also got to make sure that polls are open and safe and accessible on Election Day. Who works the polls? In most elections, people over 50, over 60 years old, they're our volunteer base. But now they're in that somewhat that 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 class of individuals who are much more susceptible to falling ill. Uh, and therefore, they're going to be much more cautious about going to work. A poll. According to the Brennan Center, more than 50 percent of poll workers are categorized as being in a vulnerable population group by coronavirus experts. So solving this might require states offering more pay to recruit younger poll workers or expanding early voting options to try to avoid long lines on Election Day like the ones we just saw in Wisconsin. What can't be missed in all this is that states are already under immense and unexpected financial pressure. Many states passed emergency budgets and some were forced to slash spending to prioritize the coronavirus. Inevitably, state tax revenues will be down, just as states are realizing that secure elections in 2020 are going to cost a heck of a lot more money than normal. And what this leads us to is not always the conclusion that a conservative like me wants, but Congress has to act decisively. And the truth is, Congress has to act now, because the stakes couldn't be higher for both parties and for our country in this November's election. We're not advocating necessarily a permanent change. We're just looking at the 2020 cycle, given the unprecedented situation we find ourselves in right now. What we're trying to do is get everybody on the same page, at least right now, to allow folks to access the ballot box in November. We have to make this work. I think this has, in a way, in an odd sort of way, brought us all together. It was ever so briefly, but in late March, Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate put their partisan differences aside to bring historic relief to try to save the economy in the face of the coronavirus pandemic. And now they have to do the same to save the election. And to be clear, you and I have a very real and immediate responsibility here to pressure local and state officials to act fast to prepare for what promises to be an unusual election season and to push Congress to provide the funding that states are going to need because the show must go on. On episode 11 of Swamp Stories, we're going to tell what may be the most encouraging story of the 116th Congress. We're going to talk to a couple of private citizens who took on quite an ambitious project to fix Congress. And sure enough, their work was instrumental in the creation of a historic select committee to modernize the People's House. And we'll talk to a few members of Congress who are tapped to serve on that select committee. Thanks for listening to Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One, the country's leading political reform organization that unites Republicans, Democrats, and independents to fix our broken political system. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review it on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. You can find out more at swampstories.org. I'm your host, Weston Watt. A special thank you to executive producer Ethan Rome. 
Producers Evan Ottenfeld and Sidney Richards, and editor Parker Tant from ParkerPodcasting.com. Swamp Stories was recorded in Tennessee, edited in Texas, and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.